Hey guys, thanks for uh, coming this morning, and so glad that you guys chose this place to be able to come and join and worship. Uh, we love to think about different ways to express what Calvary Hill is all about. Um, in short, I like to think of it just three simple words, though we've used four in multiple ways. Uh, presence, presence of God. We come because we come expecting God to be here um, amidst his people to meet with us. Um, but his presence is not just the end of everything. Then that leads to transformation. Um, we want to be transformed. And that's our hope is that as we come here, no matter what type of circumstances we may find ourselves in life, we come with this expectancy that God's presence will transform our lives into something beautiful, good, to take chaos, to turn it into orderliness and beauty and goodness. Uh, and then ultimately, the third thing is, is mission. Like, we, it's not just about God's presence, as awesome as that is, and it's not just about transformation as part of that is. It's also about mission because God gives us a calling, a vocation to go do something, to take God's presence, to basically be mobile expressions of his greatness and his transformative power everywhere we go. So um, thank you for being able to be part of this. Our hope and our prayer is that God would meet you in unique ways, begin that transformational process, and send us all out of here to basically, like I said, just be these mobile expressions of God's greatness. So I'm going to pray, and uh, then we're going to just jump right into the teaching this morning. We're in a series in the book of Daniel. We have been in this series all summer long, and we're going to continue to make our way through this. We're in Daniel chapter 7, so we're kind of at the second portion of Daniel chapter, in the book of Daniel uh, in total. We went through chapters 1 through 6, which is kind of like the first half of the book of Daniel. Now we're going to start from Daniel chapter 7, go to the last last end of it. Um, if you've ever heard uh, church or people, Christians, talk about the book of Daniel, um, you know that there's a wide array of opinions and ideas and concepts about the book of Daniel. In fact, uh, the chapter that we're going to be looking at here today, Daniel chapter 7, if you Google Daniel chapter 7, in fact, I have a little slide right here, and I'll kind of circle back to where we're going to be heading. Next slide. Um, as I was thinking about this, if you Google, Google Daniel chapter 7, uh, you will basically discover some of the most ridiculous, crazy results, uh, aside from really, really bad, uh, quote-unquote, Christian art. Um, you also have crazy, strange charts and ideas and concepts, bizarre ideas uh, that have to do with speculation about Armageddon, the end of the world, and so on and so forth. And uh, what I want to promise you right now is you will not get that from me. Um, that's not what today's going to be about. It's not. I will not be giving you speculation about how end-time sequences will happen. What I will give you is what I, what I really truly believe the main aim of this chapter in particular is all about, which is really three things. Number one is we'll take a look at, and this will be a series over the next three weeks. Uh, number one, we'll take a look at um, today, which is Daniel chapter 1 through 12, uh, 7, 1 through 12, which is the beastliness of humanity. That'll make sense as we look at the stories of these beasts that come out of the deep. We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, secondly, which will be next week, we'll take a, lot, take a look at this concept which I'll describe as a God-likeness of this figure that is identified in the book of Daniel as the Son of Man. Super significant to your understanding about who Jesus is and about the understanding of the New Testament. Um, again, we'll look at that next week. And then thirdly, uh, which will be the week to come, is we'll take a look at the vindication, the healing, and the vocation which is offered to this... Uh, Renewed humanity, and in the book of Daniel, it's described as the saints of the Most High God. Um, so we'll try to ask the bigger question, who is this community of these saints? Um, what have they been given? What extent have they been given this, whatever it is that they've been given? And uh, honestly, do not miss the next three weeks. It will be like, it's 
pivotal to your understanding not only the Bible, but, but maybe mind-blowing to your understanding of, of God and your vocation in this world and who Jesus is and what God calls us to. Um, so it's, uh, I'm, I'm really excited about this. Um, I'm also doubly excited because I just got back from vacation, which you guys were not here last week. Um, Andrew did a really great job just preaching, teaching. Um, I was surfing in Costa Rica. Um, so I'm actually really excited to be back, though, to be part of this church family. Um, so if you guys don't have Bibles, why don't you raise your hand? And we have some ushers that would love to get your Bible. Um, before we uh, jump in, what I thought would be really kind of fun is the Bible Project. If you're familiar with these guys, they do these incredible videos. Um, these guys are going to show a little video of the Bible Project, which is kind of like a, a brief overview of the entire book of Daniel. So if you've been with us over the past uh, several months, you, you know that we've looked at Daniel's chapter 1 through 6. So some of this is going to be a little bit of review. Again, these guys are able to encapsulate into uh, you know, eight minutes, which is about how long this is, um, more information than, than I can um, at, at better. And plus, plus, you get free, like, like cartoon. How good is that? So let's listen to the Bible Project video, and then we'll just jump in and begin to read uh, the passage for this morning. It's good stuff, huh? I've literally watched it like eight times, and I still learn something every time I watch it. So, um, Anyways, I want to start just with a statement, and the statement is that humans were created to rule and reign. Pause and think about that. We're, we were created to rule and reign. I don't know how you think about that or how you consider that. Um, good, bad, evil. But that's how we were created. Um, and to be as partners with God over all creation. All creation. So the scope is pretty broad. Um, instead, they became, we became, ruled and reigned over by beastly desires. And that's kind of the story that we see unpacked and unfolded for us in the Bible. And we see it continue to be like telescoped out into multiple different ways from the very beginning of the Bible all the way throughout through to the very end of the book of Revelation. Is this continual repeat storyline of human beings invited by God to rule and reign with them, with God, uh, ultimately making choices, decisions to turn away from God and then become beast-like in their actions and their attitudes and their mistreatment of other human beings. And yet salvation, Jesus steps in and does something about that. And I want to start with a question for you to just consider and think about. How, how well do you know yourself? I mean, think about this. How well do you really, really, truly know yourself? I think if you were to explore that question a little bit further, um, most of us don't really know ourselves as well as we think we do. I think if you're young, um, there's a tendency to place more emphasis upon how well you know yourself. The older you get, the more you surround yourself with other people in your life, and not just not just shallow people in your life. I'm talking like really good friends, whether it be like a long-term relationship, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a wife, a spouse. And I mean a long-term boyfriend, and girlfriend that's longer than like six months. Um, and you begin to realize once you start kind of getting past that like initial phase of like we love each other to six months where it's just like we like each other to like whatever, you know, uh, where you begin to realize you might have little activities and actions that get on each other's nerves. Um, but the point that I'd make is that we oftentimes don't know ourselves as well as we think we do. And the problem is, is that there are elements about us, especially those that know us the best, that they would say something along the lines that we have oftentimes this tendency to act in ways that are different than our best self. Um, and we could re refer to that in terms of the metaphorical language that we're going to be using here for, for beastliness. The inner beast oftentimes 
comes out. Maybe that's one of the reasons why we as a culture, we love uh, movies and shows that portray zombies and vampires and other forms of beasts, uh, mutations and whatnot, because maybe that resonates with us as human beings. Maybe there's something about that that deeply resonates with as being a human trait, that as much as we want to be human, as much as we want to function on a highly humanized type of a level whereby we treat each other and treat others in ways that we want to be treated, we just simply don't. Um, the Bible actually has language to describe this, and that's what I want to try to explore this morning. And like I said, over the next three weeks, we'll be taking a look at this entire chapter and unfolding another kind of layer to what this chapter is all about. Uh, but first, I want to really just kind of read the passage and uh, make some observations as we read through it, and then I'll just kind of finish with some concluding thoughts, and that'll be the lesson for this morning. Then we'll have some time to respond. Again, like we talked about earlier, uh, God's presence is what brings about transformation. We truly want to be people that don't just simply hear information, but want to step into it and allow God to begin to transform and reshape our beastly selves into humans, again, that reflect rightly who he truly is. So let's begin by reading uh, Daniel chapter 7, pick it up around verse 1, and I'll read all the way down to about verse 12, and then we'll jump, uh, skip a couple of verses from about verse 15 to verse 19, we'll wrap it up from then. So Daniel chapter, one verses, uh, Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 12, beginning with this. It says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. So Daniel chapter uh, 7 actually kind of gets placed back at around, around the time of Daniel chapter 5. So this book is obviously not written in any sequence of order uh, in terms of sequential events. Um, it says, in the first year of King Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, and he told the sum of the matter, and then Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and the four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. So I want to pause real quick and just make a couple of quick comments. So Daniel makes this point as he says, I see, and in my night vision, I notice that there's winds, then there's this great sea, there are these beasts coming out of this great sea, so it's this picture of dark. Darkness, sea, wind, all of this imagery should cause you to begin to think of another imagery or picture of something similar to this. Does this resonate in any way, shape, or form of any other image in the Bible? Genesis 1, right, creation, Genesis 1. You have the image of the sea. You have the image of great wind. You have this image of darkness being separated from light. Um, as someone once kind of described this, that this, I think, is Daniel chapter 7 is sort of the... Um, is really this, this uh, opposite of Genesis chapter 1. Um, it's the upside down from Stranger Things. It, it's the upside down version of Genesis 1. So Genesis 1 is about uh, chaos. And out of the chaos, God breathes over the chaos. And it begins to bring forth something that's life-giving and good and beautiful and life-creating. Um, this is the exact opposite of that. That out of the darkness, out of the chaotic sea comes these uh, chaotic monsters, these chaos monsters that cause even more chaos. Um, but if you look at it even clo more closely, what you begin to realize is you see an image of, of yourself, of, of you and I. Like, we, this is us. This is humanity. This is who we represent. We are these chaos creatures that cause chaos. And really, that's what an empire is. An empire is just kind of a collective of these things led by one individual. Most of us never will ascend to that degree of power and authority and ability and might. Um, but the fact of the matter is that all of us, in seed form at least, have some element of this 
trait that's happening within each one of us. So it goes on to say, as we read the story in verse 3, And I saw four great beasts come out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, it had eagle's wings. And then I looked, and its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground, and it made, was made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of man was given to him. Verse 5, he says, And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side, and it had three ribs, and its mouth between its teeth. It was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, and with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And pause real quick. We're going to come back to verse 7 in just a second. Um, a lot of scholars, a lot of Bible teachers believe that this is sort of a parallel version of the story of Nebuchadnezzar when he saw this uh, big statue. So on the one hand, that's the story of minerals, right? Uh, gold, silver, bronze, minerals. Um, and then this is the story of, 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 you know, monsters, right? So this is kind of the same uh, analog version, across the board version of that whole story. So pick it up at verse 7. And then it goes on to say, And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, a terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, and it had great iron teeth, it devoured and broken pieces, and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. I considered the horns. And behold, there came up from among them another horn, a little horn, before which there were three horns. Um, the first horns plucked up the roots. And behold, in this horn there were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that was speaking great things. So a uh, crazy dream, of course, right? Imagine if you woke up in the middle of the night and you had this dream in the midst of your cold sweats. You'd be like, what in the world is going on? Well, that's exactly what happened to Daniel because Daniel... It goes on to say, we'll kind of come back to that in two seconds, but uh, amidst of this dream, Daniel also sees uh, in the midst of these four great beasts, the fourth beast, like the way Tamaki in the video describes, it's like a super beast. Uh, it's this mutated type of a beast. It's like unlike any other thing that he's ever seen before, it's a mutation type of a beast. Um, he says, in the midst of that, we'll go back to the, uh, uh, the image of the throne, verse 9. Um, says, and as I looked, I want to pause real quick, and I just want you to reflectively listen, okay? Just reflectively listen. Think about what I'm about to read, because this is a really powerful image, uh, not only in the book of Daniel, but it also gets kind of put on repeat um, in the book of Revelation. It's an image that kind of comes up periodically throughout the Bible. It's the picture of, of God in the midst of chaos, and listen to God's placement or God's role in the midst of chaos. And as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. His hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. And the imagery is kind of similar to other images that have kind of come up in uh, visions, like the book of Ezekiel. He has this image of God, and uh, some scholars have described this as the, the mobile throne of God or Godmobile. Um, the image of something that moves, hence the wheels, but these are unlike any other mobile throne that you can ever even imagine. They obviously uh, have flaming uh, wheels around them, and that the image of God is shocking to behold. It's, uh, we'll talk more about this next week as we try to unpack this understanding and this image of who the Son of Man is. Um, in verse 10, it goes on to say, And a stream of fire issued and came out from before him a thousand Thousands served him. 
And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So I just want you to pause and think about this, because imagine yourself living in the midst of an oppressed people group. Um, You are at the bottom of the food chain. Uh, You have consistently been underneath the boot of your victorious, militaristic, world-power oppressor, and you are constantly uh, losing. You have no voice. You have no vote. You have no popular ability to kind of advance yourself. You have no ability to pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. You are completely, purely at the mercy of your arrogant oppressor. To have a vision like this literally creates hope because this is a God that steps into the midst of oppressive empire, arrogant empire, and says, I reign, I rule, I am overcoming. Uh, And it's not just any vision of a throne. It's a throne that's beyond imagination. It's a throne that has multi-layers. It's multiple thrones. Some think of this as kind of like a divine council that's surrounding God's throne room of like divine beings uh, multiplied by, I don't know, 10,000 times 10,000. Anybody do math on that? What is that, like a million? Uh, Robert, I, 10 million? I don't know. I'm not good at math. Um, but you get the idea. Some of you are good at math, so I'm not. Don't judge me. But the point of the matter is, this is a lot of, and I probably this is metaphorical, a way of just saying there are a lot of divine beings around the throne of God. Too many to even count. And here they are. And God steps up. God steps in. And God begins to move in the midst of all this. Next slide. We kind of finish up on verses 11 and 12 and we'll skip forward. It says, I looked. Then because of the sound of great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. And for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, and their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Next slide. As Daniel awakes, he says, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. Uh, You too? As you wake up in the middle of the night, cold sweats, you're like, what in the world was that all about? You're full of anxiety, so is Daniel. It says, and the vision of my head had alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These four beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth. So this is where the parallelism comes in to Daniel chapter 2 about King Nebuchadnezzar's dream of this massive statue and the head of gold and the chest of uh, silver and going on all the way down so this is a there's a parallel most scholars believe is kind of uh, oriented here verse 18 and the saints of the most high they shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and we'll come back to this in two weeks but i just want for you now to get a, a, a sense of this it says again the saints of the most high so if you're familiar with new testament terminology the you you hear paul for example he's a writer in the, much of the new testament bible and he uses his language to describe Jesus' people, followers of Jesus, and he calls them saints. So saints, by the way, is not a name that's relegated to somebody that has, like, miracles done in their names or some sort of super, like, hero-type follower of Jesus. It's, it's anybody who follows God. Again, we'll, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but I want you to just pause and think about this. Who, who ultimately gets the very thing that the beastly kingdoms were grappling for? What were they grappling for? They were grappling for glory and honor and power and might and dominion and reign. And all of that stripped from them and given to whom? The saints 
This, this is so mind-blowing. And when we get to it, it'll, hopefully it will blow your mind too. But I just want you to pause and think about this. Here you are. Again, you're sitting under the boot of these egotistical, maniacal, crazy people that run these massive empires. And yet the hope that Yahweh gives is his, that kingdom will be stripped from them and then be given to the saints of the Most High God. 19, it says, Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest. Exceedingly terrifying, it's the super beast, and its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. All right, I think that was it that we have as far as passages. So, uh, or do I have one more? Nope, that's it. Okay, what I want to do right now is I want to uh, really just kind of finalize some thoughts here, and then we'll wrap this up. Um, because what I think this passage wants us to at least be aware of is something about this concept of beastliness that's part of humanity. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the Bible actually traces this concept throughout, throughout the Bible of, of beastliness. That human beings, though created in the image of God to rule and reign with God as partners over all creation. In order to do that well, we need wisdom. But the problem is, is rather than trusting in God for wisdom, we depend upon our own selves for wisdom. And when we do that, when that transaction begins to happen, rather than getting wisdom, what we get is in some ways kind of this own self-fulfilling destiny where we begin to uh, take advantage of other people. But here's what happens. We become morphed into beast-like creatures. Now, for some, it's far more observant than others. So, for example, yesterday, again, another gunman goes into a region and begins to shoot people. Point blank, randomly. Just driving by, randomly killing them, shooting them, injuring them. And at some point, somewhere though, I didn't watch all the news reports as a result of this. I, I guarantee you someone somewhere said something along these lines. What possesses a human being to act in such a beastly mode? What possesses a human being to dehumanize what, what's, what's, what's below humanity? Beasts, animals. What possesses a human being to dehumanize, treat as other beasts, other human beings? This is the question that we wrestle with. We might not as cognitively wrestle with it all the time, but when evil comes and smacks us in the face, we have to step back and look at it and be like, what is going on here? Or have you ever had that moment where you've reacted in such a way where you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just acted like that. I've had multiple moments of that throughout my life, and there have been moments throughout my life when the sequences are more, like the cadences are, are more frequently than others, right? Where you step back and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I acted that way. That was not my intention. It's not how I wanted to act. It's not what I hoped as an outcome, but it's what happened. For some reason, there was an instinctive reaction in, my, in that moment, in that circumstance, that I look back now and I'm, I'm utterly ashamed of. I can't believe that took place. I, I just feel horrible as a result of that. That's uh, not me. That's not my best me. That's not, my, that's not the real me. But nonetheless, there's something about me that possesses that, that beastliness. Do, do you guys know what I'm talking about? Have you ever experienced that? Why does this happen? 
And this is what the Bible is going to tell us, and it's what I want us to think about. So beastliness happens when two of, the, two of these things happen, both of these happen. Number one, when we redefine evil and or good according to our own desires. So think about the word desire is the things that turn us on. Desires are different for every one of us. What turns you on is going to be different for what turns me on. I don't, I don't mean that in any weird way other than the fact that we all have different things that we desire, that we love, that we love, that we, things that we would look at, things that I would say is, is good, right? Chunky monkey ice cream is really good. Now, for some of you, you might be like, no, it's not. Vanilla is good. Like, that's cool, plain Jane. But the point of the matter is uh, we have different things that we like that others would say that's bad, it's not good, and others would be like, no, it's really good, and we can get in these debates and arguments over that, and then turns into third world wars and so on and so forth. You get the idea. Um, but what happens when we define good and evil according to our own unique desires, that's, that begins to form us into something that's beast-like. The second thing is that when we begin to rule our lives, when we begin to orient how we live, how we construct ourselves according to those desires that we've self-defined as good. Um, this is one of the reasons why, for example, if you have a married couple, and somewhere along the lines within that marriage, uh, one spouse begins to check out. Uh, 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road, 20 years down the road, whatever the case. At some point, that spouse falls out of love with their spouse and then begins to fall in love with somebody else. What happens is... There's a mental shift that begins to take place uh, as well as an emotional shift. And the shift goes something like this. This is good. This is no longer good. This which was once good, and I said yes to it at the altar in front of the 150 people that were present, is no longer good. This now other thing, alternative, is good. Because it's what I, what, what I feel that comes to life for me. And I realize this may be painful for somebody to even think about this in the process um, but the point that I just want, I want you to follow this line of thinking is because when I begin to orient my, my life around that new good that I've just self-defined, I will then begin to live in such a way to obtain that good, even at the expense of others. So I've shared this story before. Um, my parents divorced when I was around 12. And my mom made choices that were in the line with the new good that she had. And as a result of that, it, that new good led her to making a departure from the family that she had been a part of. And that had ripple effects. It had deep ripple effects into to my life, into the life of my sister, into the life of my siblings, uh, step-siblings. And as a result of that, uh, you, you, know, you fast forward 20, 25 years, and you just think that everything's all normal and good and everything's happy. But the point of the matter is, is that choices that we make oftentimes have these ripple effects that last for centuries. 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, way beyond what we can ever even imagine. It all is sort of this idea of beastliness. We make these choices that then begin to have ripple effects in the lives of other people that cause chaos and pain and brokenness. And what I want to take a look at as we kind of move on into this, I want to just look at a couple passages throughout the Old Testament to try to make a point with regard to this. So we'll take a look at about four different passages, and I'll go through them kind of quickly. So first one, I just want to take a look at Genesis chapter 1, and then we'll loop back to ultimately Genesis, or to the book of Daniel chapter 7. So Genesis chapter 1, basically God begins, and I'm going to just kind of go through this quick just because of time. So 
Genesis chapter 1, God says, let us make man in our own image, in our own likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, beasts of the earth. The image that is created here, who has authority over whom? Who? Humanity, right, has authority over the beast, right? Uh, so that's the order that God created all things. And it goes on to say in verse 31, and God saw all things that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So God's assessment over all this and this orderliness, he says it's really good, right? Next slide, we move on to Genesis chapter 3, which we're familiar with the story, most of us, is the serpent. The serpent comes on this uh, scene. It says that he's more crafty than all the other beasts. So again, Genesis wants us to know this little detail about the serpent. Again, aside from the fact that the serpent's talking and all sorts of strange things and whatnot, but the point that I would make is that this, this animal, this beast, has this unique ability to, to, to barter, to bargain, to talk, right? So crazy stuff that's happening. And in this process, begins to interact and dialogue with the woman and begin to, in a sense, uh, question uh, God's motives, not only God's motives, but also the sense of, of goodness. Is God really good? And is God actually leading you to the pathway of goodness? And as a result of that, verse 3, but God said, um, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So the serpent is basically leading her down a path of, uh, you can make your own choices. Like, really, life, fullness of life, is, is not about discovering wisdom beyond you. It's about self-discovery. <laughs> it's about living into your truest, most authentic self, is the way moderns would describe this. It's the same repackaged truth that takes place all the way from the very beginning. And what we have in the storyline, in the next slide, it goes on to say, then Eve, sorry, let's go back. Were we there? We were here. Here we go. Uh, and so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was to be, it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit, ate it, gave it to her husband, so on, and, says, and it says that both of their eyes were open, they realized they were naked, that something was lost immediately, and something was gained immediately at that moment. What was gained was shame. For the very first time, their eyes were open, and shame became something they were aware of. This is, this is where shame comes from. Shame comes from this realization that there's something deeply broken and wrong with my condition. And as a result of that, they sewed fig leaves uh, together to make for themselves these loincloths. So in other words, we as human beings, we want to cover our shame. So what we do is we create our own unique fig leaves. I've said this many, many times. That um, So for many of us, it's like, you know, binge shopping on, on Amazon. Like, Really what we're doing is not just simply just trying to spend money. It's like we're trying to shop for a new identity. It's just fig leaves. New ways to try, try to accommodate or cover our sense of shame. But then that creates even more guilt and uh, problems in the marriage or the relationship or the checkbook, whatever. It's just like, oh, my gosh, I feel really bad. I just need to go spend more money. And uh, it just creates this feedback loop that's not really healthy. So the point of the matter is uh, Eric Maldonado does a really great math. Uh, uh, you know, teaching on all this, you need to go talk to Eric and he'll straighten you out. Anyways, um, so we get this image so far that things begin to drift with regard to the very beginning. Next little story that we see, a third one, is Eve bore Cain and then she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, Cain was a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought 
to the Lord in offering of fruit to the ground. And Abel was brought uh, his firstborn of, of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord, again, a lot, a lot of this is just kind of information. If I had more time, I'd you know, unpack it. But the point of the matter is, I'm going to skip forward to verse 6. And the Lord said to Cain, uh, why are you angry? Because Cain was angry at this circumstance. He says, why is your face fallen? But what I want you to pay attention to is a little phrase. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. The Hebrew language, uh, the English is a little bit op opaque and uh, hard to understand. But in the actual Hebrew language, the word crouching can also have this uh, imagery of, of an animal, a beast that's crouching, hiding off in the distance, and it's waiting to pounce upon you. But God says, it's there. You need to know this. But you also need to know this so that you can overcome it. Because if you become overcome by the beast, then you become part of the beast. Beast-like. Just like your mother and father became possessed and controlled, I should say, by the beast, by the actions of the beast. And they turned on each other and they turned away from God. Uh, fourth story is we see in the book of Daniel chapter 4. Um, which is the story of Nebuchadnezzar. And I would suggest that in order to really understand the story of Daniel 7, you've got to understand a little bit about the story of Daniel chapter 4 because of the first uh, expression of this. Uh, we see that there's this guy, Nebuchadnezzar. We're told that he has this encounter with God. God basically says, look, you're prideful, you're arrogant, and if you're not careful, if you don't watch your step, um, that arrogance and that self-pridefulness and that self-ability to kind of define your own good and evil is going to get you into deep trouble and you're going to become beast-like. And then it says, while the king was walking on the roof of his royal palace, he looked out. He says, is this not great Babylon that I have created, right? So immediately he begins to fall into his own trap. And then it goes on to say in verse 32, and you shall be driven out from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall eat grass like the oxen and so on and so forth. So what we see in the rest of the story is that King Nebuchadnezzar becomes beast-like. But it's an amazing story because he actually has a, has a moment where he begins to recognize the true and living, powerful, almighty Yahweh God and turns his heart over to him and God restores everything. God restores his life. But the point that I would make is this. Again, beastliness happens in humanity just as this next slide describes. When we redefine good and evil according to our own desires and when we then rule our lives so as to acquire that self-defined good even at the expense of crushing others. So in other words, all of us, we share the same common attributes as Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, Medo-Persians, Egyptians, Donald Trump, Obama. Pick your, pick your favorite president. I don't care. We share it all because it's all innate. It's all a part of us. It's all a part of the problem of humanity that Jesus lovingly has wanted to come and to save us from. Which leads me to the last thing that I want to take a look at is how beastliness is ultimately undone. Because this is the great news. That beastliness ultimately is undone, number one, when God is acknowledged as the only true source of wisdom. We see that in the story in the life of King Nebuchadnezzar. But then secondly, when we align our ways, which is our life, our heart, our will with the ways of God. And I want to finish with a story from C.S. Lewis, and I'm done some of you guys are familiar with the story of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. 
It's, uh, there's a particular uh, character in the story, a guy by the name of Eustace. If you're unfamiliar with it, it's absolutely phenomenal. In fact, you can watch it in the movie. The movie's okay. The book's even better because there's a lot more details that's omitted in the movie. Therefore, uh, that's my point. So there's a guy named Eustace. Everybody hates him. He's a young kid. He's snotty. He's bratty. He's just got a chip on his shoulder. Nobody likes him. He's like the character in the story that everybody hates to hate, right, because he's that hateable kid. Um, and uh, they are on this voyage, right? And they come across this island. And on the island, Eustace discovers this massive mound of gold. And immediately, greediness comes to him and overtakes him. And he's like, oh, my gosh, imagine what I can do with all this gold. I can show everybody how great I am. I can control them and overpower them. And I can manipulate them because that's what gold does, right? Uh, if you don't believe me, just watch any rapper video. That's the whole point. <laughs> the point that I make is this, is that ultimately he ends up laying down on top of this massive mound of gold. He finds a bracelet, puts the bracelet on him, falls asleep, wakes up as a dragon. He morphed. He changed. He became beast-like. And as he woke up, this gold bracelet had now become like a shackle, and it constrained him. And the way that this was described, it actually caused great pain to him because it was this constant reminder of everything that was inside was now outside. Everything, every bit of greed and anger and frustration and bitterness and beastliness that was inside his heart kind of morphed and turned inside out. And now he's wearing it externally. And here he is, a dragon, a beast. Uh, he tries to go back and find all his friends, and uh, he hangs out going into that area, and everyone's afraid of him because it's, it's a dragon, right? Um, they don't know it's useless. They can't tell it's useless, right? Because... Uh, it's, a, it's a dragon, and it's breathing fire. And every time he tries to talk, fire comes out of his mouth. And it's like they assume, all of his friends, that he's trying to kill them. And all of a sudden, Eustace then goes back in utter defeat on the beach. And he's just he's weeping. He's, he's just full of just sorrow and sadness. And he's aware of the alienation that his own beast-likeness has caused and created in his life because he was unable to control his greediness and anger and bitterness and temper and all these other types of things. And he begins to try to scrape his scales off. But he's a lizard, so remember, lizards shed their skin. And as he begins to shed and scrape, he does this three times, and all he begins to realize is just, it's taking nothing more than just an external coat of skin on the ground. That's it. So this is the, the writing of Sears Lives. And then later, what ends up happening is Aslan comes up on the seashore, and as Sears Lives describes, Aslan breathes on him and roars. And then that breathing and that roar uh, the skin begins to come off. And then later, uh, Eustace recounts this whole story. And I, I just want to read it to you, and then I'm, I'm done. In fact, I'm going to have the worship team come on up while I'm reading this so that we can then immediately just transition into a time of response. So listen to how he describes this. Eustace then recounts this whole situation. The very first tear that Aslan made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. When he peeled the beastly stuff right off. Just as I thought I'd done it myself the three other times. Only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass. Only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and soft and peeled as a peeled switch, 
uh, and smaller than I had ever seen again. Then he caught hold of me, and I didn't like that much as I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And then he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything but only for a moment. After that, I became perfectly, it became perfectly delicious as soon as I started swimming and splashing. I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me in new clothes. This is an image, I, I believe, one of the most amazing images of salvation. God taking our dragon heart, dragon life, and giving us a new humanity. Uh, the way C.S. Lewis describes it is to describe him becoming a boy again. Salvation is becoming fully human. And this is what Jesus offers us today. And as we get into the story next week, what we see about Jesus is he's the only one who's capable and able. This is why we come to him. This is why even now in this moment, we pause, we reflect, we do what Jesus invites us to do as we take the bread and we drink the cup, as we're reminded of the meal, the table that we've been invited to come to. So no matter who you are, no matter how broken you are, uh, welcome. Welcome to the club. Welcome to the club of broken people. Right? That's who we are. Like we are, we, there's, there's no, no one can stand on their own two feet. None of us are capable of ripping the dragon skin off of ourselves. This is why we need each other, guys. This is why we ultimately need Jesus to be the one that does it for us. But it begins by us responding to his initiation, which is his love that we see portrayed 2,000 years ago as he comes in this world. And just before he dies, he takes the bread, breaks it, gives it to his disciples. He says, each time you eat this, remember what I'm about to do for you. As he lays his life down. You know what Jesus is? He's the ultimate opposite of the super beast. Who rather than crushing others, says, I will be crushed for others. I will bear their brokenness and their pain and their grief and their loss. And in exchange, I will give to them wholeness and newness. And I'll exchange their chaos for peace. This is what the good news, this is why we call it the good news, the good news of the kingdom, of the king. So as we respond right now, I invite you, no matter who you are, no matter where you're at, no matter what type of circumstances you're going through, if you need prayer, we want to pray for you. We have some space up at the side by the cross to just come, partake of the communion. Maybe just get on your knees before God and respond to him. Uh, we'll have some people off, off to the side as well up here to pray for you. If you need prayer, if you don't know Jesus and you want to put your confidence and your trust in Jesus today, we want to pray for you. If you have sickness, disease, brokenness, you recognize that inner beastliness is not coming off and you don't know why, uh, we want to pray for you. Guys, the presence of Jesus leads to transformation and leads to mission. In that order, always in that order. And it cycles back. So why don't we all stand? Let me pray. And let's respond. So Jesus, thank you for your great love. And as we partake the bread and drink the cup, as we sing, as we pray for one another, as we are prayed for, Jesus set people free. Set people free.
just respond. Come forward, be prayed for, partake of communion, spend some time with Jesus, being transformed.